Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I am so glad you guys are back. Thank you so very much. Oh, I know I always thank you and I sound like a, such a Californian, like over the top superlatives, but I love you because you listen to these amazing stories and you're not alone. We have millions of downloads now, so I'm really thrilled because these stories are resonating. And, and I've been thinking so much lately about what drives people to start their dream business. I mean, Obviously, some are propelled by the thought of creating something they totally believe in. Others just want to make a ton of money. And and still others have this unquenchable desire to be their own boss, like work for themselves. Now, if two or more of those things come together, well, congratulations. That's totally awesome. But none of it, none of it happens without sheer will, sweat equity. And in the case of my guest today, sleeping on sacks of flour. (laughs) You guys are like, wait, what, Liz? Yes, Dan DeZio tossed his career as a stockbroker over his shoulder and decided he was going to be his own boss by making the best soft pretzel in Philadelphia. Okay, but dreaming about it was just the easy part. Actually launching the Philly Pretzel Factory, which today has 145 locations spanning 11 states and hauling in millions and millions of dollars. Well, that's a different story, one you guys have to hear because the twists and turns of his story will have you amazed. Dan, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, to me, it's so much more than the pretzel story. But the last I talked to you, you did not have 145 stores. Yeah, we're growing uh, rapidly. We have 11 stores um, under construction right now, so we're definitely uh, growing. We're really excited about where we are as a spot. Where are the 11? Tell me some of the places. All over. St. Louis, a bunch are opened up in St. Louis, in Illinois, um, what else? North Jersey, just all around. So um, we're headed into Florida right now. So we're really excited about the you know, possibilities. I think maybe my second podcast guest four years ago when we first launched this was the founder of Auntie Anne's Pretzels. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but And, you know, she had an incredible story, she too. Did. She's yes. from Amish country. Yep. She, too, went into franchising. But these are not easy to do. Everybody says, oh, okay, a pretzel business. Why not? But you started germinating this idea when you were 11 years old. Yeah, what happened at 11, my neighbor owned a pretzel bakery when I was 11 years old. Then um, Back then, there was 10 pretzel bakeries in Philadelphia, and they all worked in the same fashion. They would go to work at 4 in the morning. They would twist the pretzels. They would close up usually by 9 o'clock in the morning. They would deliver to schools and hospitals, and these 10 pretzel guys were all fighting for the same customers. And one faithful morning, uh, my neighbor saw me out back, and he had gotten stuck with 1,000 pretzels. Somebody canceled a big order. And he said, what are you doing today? And I knew plans as an 11-year-old, and he said, well, <laughs> how about I set you up on the corner, and whatever we sell, we'll split the money, because I'm going to throw these in the trash. And I was like, I'm in. He goes, first, I have to ask your mom if, if it's okay. 
And for some reason, my mom said at 11 years old, I could stand on Roosevelt Boulevard, which in Philadelphia is a 12-lane highway. Um, and I sold all day. And back then, it was five for a dollar. So I brought in 200 hours. I got 100 hours. Um, he got 100. I'm 52 now. So this is 41 years ago. So 100 hours was a lot of money back then. It still is today. And uh, he, uh, I was... I was enthralled and not about the money. I was so excited about customers handing out money because I was so nervous when I first got on the corner. You just put me there by myself and, and people are waving dollar bills and I'm, I'm running all over and I got such a high from it and loved it. So at the end of the day, I was like, can we do it again tomorrow? And he goes, okay, I'll bake up extras um, and I'll sell them and had another great day. Within a couple of weeks, I'm walking around my middle school with wads of $1 bills. <laughs> and uh, I would always keep a 20 on the outside so it looked like I really had a lot of money. So going, you you and the strippers with yeah. a wad of $1 bills. So, and everybody started asking for a job. And my I, next thing I know, I'm telling the guy, the guy, Steve, my boss, hey, I got a bunch of kids. And eventually it was 45, 50 kids a day to stand on all various street corners all over Northeast Philadelphia. And we would meet at different lights. And my job at five in the morning was to call everybody. It wasn't text messages, 1983 you know, or whatever. And I would send uh, call everybody and tell them where to meet and where the pretzels would be and kind of did it. And by the time I got the ninth grade, things were so going so well. You'll love this, Liz. The... Um, <laughs> It really became a business, right? And we realized that the corners that were the best corners were the corners that were red lights, right? Where the, where the traffic stopped at a perfect time where it was a red light because sure. we had an extra 60 seconds to really sell the product. So eventually uh, my boss said, listen, if you ever see the guy working on the street lights, get his information and set up a meeting. So eventually I saw the guy literally like a day later, it's coincidental, it was like a day later. And I said, can we meet? Um, my boss wants to meet you outside the city. We were outside city. And we went on to pay this guy $2,500 a week for years to set the red light <laughs> on Roosevelt Boulevard, <laughs> light after light, so that we could do it. And things went so well that year. I made the business decision, which is just crazy looking back on it. Um, I call it an internship now looking back on it. But I stopped going to school. I had uh, mastered my faking my report card. I used to take someone else's report card. I'd photocopy theirs and put my information. And um, I almost made it through the whole entire year. I was working seven days a week, never took a day off, and almost made it through the whole year. And one night in May at dinner, the doorbell rang, and there was two sheriffs there, and they were there to arrest my mom. <gasps> and what they thought was my dad had died a couple years before, and, and they thought my mom was forcing me to sell pretzels on the street corner to support the family. She had no idea I'm missing school, <laughs> oh and she's wearing a pink robe, a pink robe as they're ready to arrest her, to, to take her. And we go to court, and a judge, they're going to send me away to Hershey, Pennsylvania, to a home for basically troubled use. And my mom's begging them not to, and it just worked out the right time. My mom met uh, my current stepdad at that point. was an FBI agent, worked up in New York here, and uh, he basically said, it's real simple. You get good grades, you sell pretzels. You don't get good grades, you don't sell pretzels. So basically, my internship was over and that was my freshman year. I repeated that year, went on to do okay in school, good enough to, to get by and uh, kept selling pretzels on the weekends. You little hoodlum. Yeah, so. Well, they always say that really to succeed, you got to break things. And, <laughs> and if that means your own high school career, wow, but that's, that's extreme, isn't it? 
for back then, when you look back on it, I didn't know any better. I just loved the business and I didn't spend the money. I used to just throw the money in a drawer and like organize it every couple of weeks and wrap it up. And I just was into the, the working. I was never the greatest student. So I just loved everything about interacting with people. And I, I learned little tricks on how to sell more pretzels every day. And uh, besides paying the guy for the street lights, there was other little tricks that I kind of learned. And, uh, and I still use those tricks today. Right. Some of the things I learned on the corner, which was one of them, for example, was I noticed that um, when I would hold a lot of pretzels, like bags of pretzels, I used to hold eight bags. So that's 40 pretzels and uh, 20 in each hand. I was a small little kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I noticed the more I held, more people would buy. Right. And uh, to this day, you come in our store, our display cases, we try to keep them stockpiled because we know the more volume they have, chances are we're going to sell a lot more product. And that was something that started, you know, that I noticed early on in in ninth grade. This is interesting. So your your dad had passed away and you are, I'm sure, devastated by that. Best friend. Yep. And there are a lot of people who use that as an excuse to say, well, I, I got the short stick. Mm. I got the short straw and I have every excuse not to lift my head up and and face the world anymore. I don't think he, in the short time that I had with him, he made sure that he ingrained um, being an entrepreneur. He was an entrepreneur. He wanted to be and he he made efforts to do it. And he used to always say to me, um, open your own business. And the other thing is he said, always go in the food business, which is ironic that I'm in the food business. He said, you know, People always got to eat because it was the early 80s when he passed away. So it was really a tough time economy-wise and things like that. And uh, that's always stuck with me. And uh, it's it's always been a point. And he's behind okay, so me. after high school, what happens? So I end up dating a girl in high school who I am the pretty much the worst student in the school. She is the <laughs> best student in the school, right? Um, true story. I think I graduated second to the bottom of the class, and she was probably second from the top of the class. Um, but she was about college and education and stuff. And uh, I, she really, in, in that and my stepdad really pushed me to want to go to school. Um, and I did, but I kept selling pretzels in the summer, went to college, East Stroudsburg University. I still did it in the summer, winter break, um, would do it. And by the end of it, I kind of got into my major. I want to be a stockbroker. So my last year in college, I was done selling pretzels. And what happened was I got a job lined up as a stockbroker right out of school and got in there and, and had some early success with it, but just didn't like what I was doing. I missed the smiles that I got from selling pretzels, something so small as people were so excited. People were traveling to the shore, the beaches, and they would get pretzels on the street corner before they went to the, the Phillies game or the Eagles game. So I just loved that um, interaction and wanted to get back to it and I wanted to open up a pretzel bakery. And that sort of was in the back of my head, never expecting to open up, you know, to do literally we're at billions and billions of pretzels we produce now. Um, I just was expecting, I wanted to open one. One pretzel bakery was the dream. Uh, and it was really to do what other guys did, op- going at four, close at nine. And when we were looking for a location, I, my college roommate, I approached him with this idea. Um, he didn't know anything about pretzels. And I hit him with, uh, he was a golfer at the time. I said, we go to work at four, we're done at nine every day. And he was like, I'm in. Like, it wasn't about being rich. It wasn't about making a lot of money. It was really for him, quality of life. Right. And for me, it was just growing something and uh, wanting to open that first bakery. So we were looking for locations. 
And we were going to be in a warehouse. That's where all the other guys were in a warehouse. We weren't reinventing the wheel. We were going to do what they did. And when I was looking, the rent was $1,500 for a warehouse. Mm. And we found a spot on Frankfurt Avenue in Northeast Philadelphia. It was $1,000. But it was a retail street. You know, um, there were shops on that street. And we took that spot strictly for economic reasons because the rent was cheaper. And we opened that first day. And well, at nine. Well, well, wait. Yep. You had to get the equipment okay, first. Okay, yes, you're you're right. Come we, on, we, jump... we don't get to jump around yeah, here. Okay, you're right. You really go into it, huh? Oh, I <laughs> want to know because I'm I'm truly fascinated about how you found industrial pretzel equipment. Yeah. So the way it worked out was in the reason I told you there was ten pretzel bakers in Philadelphia, and the reason there was only ten, there was only ten pretzel machines. There was no manufacturer for pretzel machines. These they call them stringers. Okay. Uh, nobody made them. They were all homemade for the most part. And these ten pretzel guys, although they were competitors, they all worked together to keep everybody else out of the business. And they couldn't get a pretzel machine. No one made them. And they wouldn't oh. let you take a picture of it or see it. They would cover them up after they were done. Use them in the morning. So. Once like a I wanted, cartel, a pretzel cartel. It, it felt like that a little bit, to so be it's honest. It's like OPEC for pretzels. <laughs> so for me to get in the pretzel, I decided to get a pretzel machine. And uh, so I was looking around. I The one nice thing about being a stockbroker back in the mid-90s was I had access to long distance all day. So, um, you know, the younger viewers, uh, younger listeners are, don't even remember, but it was expensive to have long distance. So I would call around to try to find a pretzel machine all day. Mostly seven of my eight hours a day was that. And after about six months, I found one in Florida. And uh, don't have any pictures. The guy said he had one. And we uh, we jumped on a plane. Me and my college roommate, Len Lehman, jumped on a plane. We uh, rented a, a truck, a U-Haul truck, drove to this guy's house, knocked on his door. And we were in there. And he said, OK, let me show you the machine. And I'm thinking we're going to go to a warehouse or something. And he goes, it's in my garage. And I was like, oh, well, it's weird. Because it's a big machine. It weighs thousands of pounds. Okay, it weighs, It's about 20 feet long. And it's weird wow. that it would be in his garage. So okay. he opens the garage door. I don't see it. In the back of the garage, he's got a lawnmower on top of this thing and, and you know, a leaf blower <laughs> and stuff. And he starts taking all this stuff off and he unveils this machine. Now, my college roommate, Len, he's never seen a pretzel machine before. <laughs> I've seen him before. He unveils this thing. It's over a 100-year-old machine, okay? It, it, it was from 1920, or eight, 18, 1920s is okay. the old machine. So okay. back then it was 80-some years old. And uh, we... I looked at it and I've seen them before, but this was really a bad looking machine. This was the worst one I've ever seen. And my roommate, we put our college, all our money up, everything we had to buy this machine, sight unseen, we came with money to buy it. And uh, we actually are looking at it and we're walking around it and we're there and I can't believe that. And he pulls me aside and he goes, there is no way I'm using my life savings to buy that machine. It's not worth $50. <laughs> and I can't even argue with them. It's that bad. Right. It's plywood, cast iron. And uh, we're there for about an hour. And we eventually, we need this machine to get in the pretzel business. You can't do it without it. Ovens, mixers, you can find that stuff, but not a pretzel machine. So we end up, um, we say, listen, we're not going to buy it. You know, because uh, we agreed to a price before, but we just can't do that. So we leave. And we get in the U-Haul truck. Now we got to drive this U-Haul truck home because oh, that was the way we we're coming, gosh. empty. And I tell this story often because it's such a it gives me goosebumps when I think about it. We went to drive away, and we there was a stop sign. We drove away, and we hit the stop sign. And I said to Len, it sounds so rehearsed and it sounds fake, but I swear it was true. We, uh, I said, Len, we're about to drive this truck home empty. 
I said, this is the fork in the road of our lives. We can either take a chance and go back and get this machine or go back to our lives. And we'll probably, he was a psych counselor. I was a stockbroker. We probably would have went back to those lives and that was it. And I said, we're 25 years old. This Now's is, the time. This is, it. this is the chance to take it. And he goes, I can't imagine spending my life savings on that thing. And I said, maybe we can negotiate it. I backed the truck up, pull back, I knock on the door. He comes back. We go back to looking at the machine. Now we're critiquing the machine a little bit for him to try to get the number lower. Yeah. We're there for hours, hours. Eventually, his wife um, makes dinner. <laughs> we have dinner there. <laughs> we go back. Now, we got to the house at 11 o'clock in the morning. It's dinner time. We're still trying to negotiate. We end up eating there. We go back out. We're talking pretzel stories and all the stuff that growing up. And what the reason he got this machine and, and about 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night, I think we just physically wore the guy down and yeah. he wanted to go to sleep. Yeah. He goes, I'll take $14,000 for it. And which was almost half of what we agreed to originally. And I said, great. And we have to call you a um, tow truck to drag it out of his garage, put it on a tow truck, back it up to the U-Haul truck and roll it into the um, thing. And that's how we got the original machine. Okay. You guys, are you listening to the, who knew about pretzel machines and the, the detail and the minutia that, that is involved in this kind of thing. But for me, the fact that you stuck with it and then there was that, that moment mm-hmm. that, well, as you put it, the fork in the road yeah. where you you decided to take the road less traveled. Yeah. And the reason I bring the story up and I tell it often is, you know, when we looked at the machine, we saw everything wrong with the machine. There was plywood, old motors, rust, and it was just a lot of bad things. And when we walked away originally, we looked at all the things that were wrong, right? And after we brought it back up, Turns out we couldn't plug it in down there. It's special electric. It needs three-phase electric. But when we found the location, we put it in and we threw dough in it. It worked perfect. The product was the most beautiful pretzels I've ever seen. Um, And what I realized was we looked at all the fault on the machine because we had so much fear. Right, the fear was controlling us. We were sk- once we bought this machine, we were in the pretzel machine. All this other stuff was just dreams. The getting a plane ticket, flying there, it was all just talk. But this was the final commitment, and we saw all the fault, so that we can have it out, right, it, it, to get out of it. And finally, when we said let's go and go for it, and when we finally ran the machine, all the things that I thought were wrong with it were all the character to say, look how smooth it was. You could tell this machine had twisted millions of pretzels or made millions of strings. You hand twist the pretzels. Um, And that's what really uh, uh, captivated us from a business standpoint and really set the tone for the rest of my life, um, this 26 years ago, that, you know, fear is such a powerful thing and something that we all deal with, um, whether you want to go to take a, when you go to, go to Ohio to start your career, fear is just a big factor in it. And sometimes you have to overcome that. I always think to myself, I'm glad that 99% of the world is too scared to do what you did, what I did, which was, oh, sure, let me leave L.A. and everything I've known and the the sunshine and the palm trees and my family and Malibu and go to central Ohio because the third rated television station says, okay, we'll take a chance on you. Yes, that's what you do. Glory goes to those who dive into the water when they can't see how shallow or how deep it is and nobody else is coming along with you. Mm. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back. 
We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So now you get to go to the part where you opened that first yep. factory, but it was a storefront, and you were supposed to close at 9 a.m., yep. done, play golf. Yep. What happened? Well, before we even get to the opening day, so we we put the equipment in there. We're, we're building the story out. We don't do anything right. We don't get permits. We don't do any of that <laughs> stuff, right? And uh, so we opened the store, and we have we, we basically call the health department to tell them to come out, you know, to inspect the store, to do this inspection. Because um, we found out you had to do that to, prior to opening. And we, we go and the inspector comes and he goes through this whole store. And we've done nothing right, nothing at all in the store right. <laughs> and he, he's eventually, he sees all the problems. He writes up this thing and he says, there's 39 critical violations in here. He goes, I'll see you in a couple months. And when he, because it's that much, oh, that many things, and brutal, brutal. we go, we now we're deflated, right? Because we we're all in this thing. We thought we did a great job, but we didn't really, we didn't know anything, right? So ends up we call our college buddies and we all bring them in that night, and we finish everything on the list that night. And I go to his office and I'm sleeping against his door in the office um, the next morning. And I tell him, we're ready, we're ready. And he can't believe it, that we did everything. Comes that next day, long story short, he passes us. We opened the next day, May 2nd, 1998 was the day we opened up. And we open, we open up, we get there four in the morning, we're twisting some pretzels, six o'clock, nobody comes in. Not that we expected like a line or anything, we just, nobody came in. I was looking for kids to set up on the street corner. I thought we could find some people and get back to that because um, we were really going to be a wholesale pretzel bakery. The idea was to sell wholesale. Sure. Um, and then at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, there was a famous deli that was next to us. It sold lunch meats and Saturday morning, everybody would get their lunch meats for the weekend. And people started coming out of there and coming in the store. And the next thing you know, we had a line, 45 people deep. And you know how a line is, it attracts even more people. Yes. And we just yes. couldn't keep up. It was only me and Len. Um, we couldn't keep up. And we couldn't even get them out of the oven to put them in bags. They were blazing hot. People couldn't even hold the pretzels. <laughs> and although Philadelphia is famous for pretzels, they weren't used to buying hot pretzels. They were used to buying them off the street corner from like when I was a kid, cold, sweaty sometimes, the salt was melting. So here they are, hot out of the oven in a store. And remember I told you there's 10 pretzel bakers. Nobody knew where those were. The average public 
person didn't know because they, they were, were in a more warehouse. Wholesale. Yeah, they were wholesale. Exactly. So here they are coming in a store to get hot, fresh pretzels. We couldn't keep up, and the line never went away until five o'clock. And I told my college roommate, Len, I said, "Sell your golf clubs. We're staying open every day, <laughs> so all day." And we did. And and from there, we would go every night. Sam's Club. We would go buy our flour and greens. We didn't know you could get that stuff delivered. We didn't, this wasn't a well thought out plan here. <laughs> um, we we end up going to Sam's Club and we buy flour and we buy all the ingredients. And you know, if you've ever been to Sam's Club, there's all these empty boxes at the front of this store. We would take all that stuff because that was our packaging material for the next day. So if you bought 50 pretzels or 100 pretzels the next day, it was in a Hers potato chip box or something. We would give you, uh, and, yeah. So and that's when we, we you know, it, then we next thing you know, the line just never went away. Big orders were coming to us. I mean, people would order 10,000 pretzels, 20 crazy orders. Uh, we eventually started hiring all of our college buddies, came to work for us. Um, but we just couldn't even keep up. We weren't getting a day off of work. We were, and then that's when we started sleeping on flower bags. And let's talk about that because you realized, wait a minute, this is really something. We have lightning in a bottle, you know, pretzels in an oven that, that the world seems to really like. Mm. So you didn't ramp up. And I mean, how, how did you end up sleeping on bags of flour. As fast as we thought we were fixing the problems, the business was growing exponentially per day, right? So the word was getting out. So um, all the other guys who had pretzel bakeries that would go to work at four or five in the morning and come, some of their accounts, their big accounts, these hospitals, Italian water ice places and ice cream shops that would get pretzels from, a lot of those places don't even open till the evening time. And they would have to buy cold pretzels at you know seven o'clock in the morning. So here we are, we're open all day. So we kept getting all this business to come to us because they wanted them hot and fresh. They could pick them up at five o'clock before their ice cream shop even got doing business. Um, so every day we think we're ahead. We were still behind. And the equipment wasn't that, you know, some of the things that we were trying to work with, we didn't even have a cash register. We used aprons at the beginning. Um, going to Sam's Club to buy the flour wasn't the most efficient use of time. And eventually, but we had no, remember, before phones, right? So, I mean, no, there was no way to like... Even trying to find employees or do anything, we didn't have five minutes to like sit down and do research. Let's call a place that'll deliver flour and stuff like that. We just didn't even have time, so we weren't really working smart. We were working hard, but we really weren't working. You know, smart. I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who say, had they really studied up ahead of time, they probably wouldn't have succeeded mm. because you don't know what you don't know. And this goes back to the inspection. I mean, I remember the guy from Coco Vita. You know, we've we profiled him. The the most successful, best-selling globally coconut water company. He said, "Liz, we just we just bought a bunch of coconut water from this girl in Brazil. We met in a bar in Brooklyn. We didn't realize that when you ship something on a, on a tanker or you know a, a, one of these cargo ships, you can't just show up at a port right. on the East Coast. You have to have paperwork." And they stopped our shipment, and they would not unload it. And the only place they would unload it was in the Bahamas. And I had to spend my bar mitzvah money to, to go buy a ticket to, to the Bahamas. I rented a truck, and I sold it out of the back of the truck, because otherwise we would have lost it. But had he known, oh, this is such a pain. I don't want to fill out this paperwork. When you sort of tumble and fall as you go, that's almost the gift of being an entrepreneur, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, listen, we, at the beginning, as bad as it was, I mean, we were, we might have second guessed it, to be honest with you, because it was that much. Um, we had this great success, 
But we're like, man, did we really like you have business and that's what you dreamed of and all of these lines of people. But man, we were when you're, you're sleeping on flower bags, yeah. it was just exhausting just to get one night's sleep. And the reason we slept on flower bags, you're like, why don't you just go home and sleep? The reason we didn't is we wouldn't get done till eight <laughs> o'clock at night. And what we decided was we would go home, we would eat dinner. And we would come back at nine and we'd sleep on the flower bags from nine to 12. And the problem was we tried it where we went home and slept from that and we didn't get up. Right. right? So at nine to 12, we were already in it. We were never in a deep, deep sleep. We got a few hours sleep and we were right into it at 12 o'clock and the whole day, again, seven days a week until we started. Eventually it took us six months to nine months to finally start really maybe a day off, one day off. And um, as soon as that happened, I was like, let's do another store. And my college roommate, Len, goes, never, never another, another one for me. Good luck to you. Because he was, again, he, remember I told you, he got into this for a quality of life. Right. So he wasn't, he was here well. the exact opposite. So he's like, good luck to you. And had no. And I went on to open up some stores without him. And then we eventually started the franchise company um, in 2003. You never got your MBA. You didn't go to business school. No. Uh, you went to school of hard knocks. And, and, and you realize that, you know, the upper crust of business, what, what is that anyway, but a bunch of crumbs held together by a lot of dough. This is sweat equity and learning as you go. When did you stop, take a breath and realize, I'm on my 15th store now. This is a, this is a real thing. And, mm-hmm. and I'm getting good at this. Mm-hmm. Is your advice to people who think they have to get an MBA or they have to somehow do a ton of research or or really kind of overthink it. Hmm. What is your advice to people? Like yeah, that? I think that a lot of overthinking comes with it because there's probably no business, right? That And you've interviewed thousands of CEOs and um, there's probably no business before it opened on paper that probably looks good, right? And my accountant always says, he's a great accountant. He's been with us for years. He always says, I've opened up other businesses and all. And he always says, every single thing I've ever brought him, he says, this is a bad idea. And I go, what would scare me if you said it was a good idea? Because that's his job. I, he analyzes things and looks at risk and he, he looks at that. Um, so that's a big part of it, right? When you have too much knowledge, to your point, if I would have known all the things that go into making pretzels and the pretzel making is just part of the the business. Um, it's a lot of the other stuff, the tax stuff and all these things that you learn along the way, it would have been overwhelming, right? And by finding out piece by piece is the way we found out. We didn't, we just accomplished little goals along the way because we, they came up and we figured out how to fix it that day or to overcome that day. Um, but if we would have saw them all written out for us, we would have been scared to death and probably never, went and took the chance. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back. I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands. And I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no 
fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. So you guys, you think that that's where the story ends. Um, hardly, because you often hear me say that success isn't an end point. It's a way station. And guess what comes after the way station? Stumbles and falls and sometimes near death. And I know that sounds dramatic, but that's exactly what happened to Dan. I want you all to think about March of 2020, right? Uh, the world is suddenly shutting down, and we're hearing about this pandemic. And Dan is actually, I, I don't want to call you patient zero, but March 18th, mm. you start to feel sick. Mm-hmm. What the heck happened there? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, you know, the world was going to close down. They were just talking about COVID. It was just in the news. And if, in a couple of weeks, we're going to close down for two weeks or whatever. Um, and I remember walking through my development and uh, I walked it on a Tuesday night and it felt great. And Wednesday I thought, I go, man, I feel like a little out of breath or something. And next thing I know, Thursday felt worse. Friday felt really, really sick. Um, called my doctor. So I think I have COVID. He goes, you don't, you're watching the news too much. You don't have COVID. <laughs> Barely anybody has COVID. Remember, Tom Hanks just got it. I it's, remember Tom yep, and Rita Tom, Hanks. Yep. And that was a shock. They were all the way in Australia. Yep. And that was like the, where it came out. He's like, listen, you're watching the news too much. I go. And he goes, I'll give you a Z-Pack. And I've taken Z-Packs before. I feel great the next day. And took the Z-Pack. Didn't feel any better the next day. And he said, I said, he goes, listen, the first drive through um, for COVID testing is opening up Monday morning. Go there. It opens at nine o'clock, uh, Holy Redeemer. So I, I drive up there. I'm waiting at eight in the morning. Um, I'm the first car in line and they test me and they, they do the, um, up my nose, the mm-hmm. swab and they go, okay, we'll give you the results in a week. And I go a week. Like I didn't know it was going to be a week. So I leave there and I just didn't want to go home. Cause I felt like every time I laid around more, I felt worse. So I decided to drive towards center city in center city. I'm driving in this city. And I'm getting worse as I go. I could tell just in that hour. It's about an hour from outside to say I'm getting worse and worse. And uh, next thing I know, I'm coming down towards Jefferson in uh, hospital in Center City. And by the time I get there, I can't breathe. I thought my throat swelled up and closed because I had a sore throat. And I run into the, I leave my car in the middle of Chestnut Street. I run in the Jefferson emergency room. I hold my hands up to my throat like I'm choking. And they, they bring me in. And next thing I know, I fall asleep. And I wake up a couple hours later, and I feel great. And I go, oh, my God, I feel great. What did you give me? And they're like, we gave you some steroids, and um, now you got to pack up and go. And I said, we, would you, are you giving me the steroids to go? And they go, no, um, but we got to get the hospital ready. for. There's a lot of older people, and you're very healthy. I was 48 years old at the time. And they're like, so you got to move it on. And the reason I tell this story is to be an advocate uh, is an important for part yourself, of sure. yourself. And uh, th- they were great at the hospital, so mm-hmm. I, I don't want to take it. But they were really concerned about these older people, and they needed beds in there. And she goes, listen, you've been here six hours. You have to leave because we can't keep you any longer, and you're you're fine now. And so I said, well, I couldn't breathe. I was scared to death. And they said, uh, 
well, you got to go. And I, two hours later, she goes, listen, I'll give you an extra couple hours and you can stay here for a couple hours. Um, and a couple hours later, she comes in she goes, listen, you have to leave now. It's, you know, I give you the extra two hours. And I said, listen, I respect what you have to do, but if you have to call the police, do what you have to do. But I'm, uh, I'm not leaving, um, without somebody taking me out of here. And next thing I know, they admitted me. And that's the last thing I remember. I woke up a couple months later, two months later, um, from, I did have COVID turned out. I wake up two months later, I'm, um, 70 pounds lighter than I, uh, my normal weight is my arm, right arms paralyzed. Um, on propofol, the Michael Jackson drug, I'm hallucinating. I don't know. Everybody's walking around with these bubble shoots with the tubes coming out. I'm behind a glass window, like ICU. Um, I don't know what's going on. I thought I got kidnapped. I really thought I got kidnapped and somebody took my kids. Um, so I was having these horrible nightmares. Um, eventually, the doctors snuck my fiance in to see me um, because I could recognize a voice and, and because I was in such a panic. And yeah, so I was missed two months of my life in there. Um, I had a, a thing called an ECMO machine where they shut your lungs down and they take your blood out and clean it because my lungs were just completely full of fluid. So basically, I was like a drowning victim. They do that for drowning victims. And uh Sure enough, that with the ventilator, with the feeding tubes and everything, I was in there and eventually uh, got out of there. A couple weeks later, I went to a rehab center, learned to walk again, learned to eat again. Um, you know, it was just, I couldn't see my kids for months. I was still testing positive a couple months later after COVID. I was still positive. So I couldn't see anybody. They had me in a, a wing at McGee and uh, both Jefferson did a wonderful job and uh, McGee Rehab Center. Well, did they were heroes. Yeah, it was amazing. All the first responders and the nurses and the doctors, Mm -hmm. uh, just heroic. And they volunteered for those those floors, those COVID. I was on a COVID floor, and they actually volunteered. It was amazing um, that they would put themselves. Remember, looking back on now, it might not seem like it, but people were scared to death at the time. I mean, it was a scary spot um, because there was no vaccine. There was nobody knew why was I so healthy, uh, no underlying conditions to get that ill, but I had a very small chance to make it. Unbelievable yeah. that you you nearly died, and during that process, the business was on life support. Well, remember, we a big part of our business is schools, parties, party trays is a huge part of our business. Shut it down. Um, athletic sports things, all those things were gone. Right? It was you know, and and we're a snack food, so it's not essential to living. It's more of a, a celebration food, a party Although food. people in Philadelphia would disagree. They'd say that this is, this is an essential food and you're an essential worker. Yes. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner in Philadelphia. But yeah, so it, uh, it definitely hurt the business. But I'll tell you, we, that's when you realize when you've created the greatest team in the world that they were able to run it. And, you know, remember this, we have all these franchisees that their life savings and involved in this business and they're scared to death. They have no people coming in. The store's not even open in a lot of cases, these stores. So they're really scared. So really finding out about financial assistance and programs, that's really what our team worked on to try to help. I mean, I wasn't involved at all. Obviously I was out of the loop there, but they really did. And really it it gave the franchisees confidence. They weren't alone. They weren't by themselves in this situation. Um, And a lot of them pivoted. A lot of them came up ways um, to help first responders and accept donations from the public that would buy pretzels for first responders. Not even know who they're buying them, but I'll take 300 pretzels. I'll pay for them, but they'll go to the hospital. They'll go to the police department, the fire houses and uh, just treat it. So it was able great. It was great that we were able to help the first responders, but it was also great for the business to keep it running because these stores were on, you know, really life support themselves. Well, you survived. The business is surviving and thriving. Yes. 
tell me your your hope and your dream for the next year or two in the business. Yeah. Well, we are we're opening a lot of stores inside Walmarts. We've been really excited that we open up bakeries inside the Walmarts, in the front of the Walmarts. A great opportunity, great partner for us. And we really see that as an expansion for us to, to get the product out there. A lot of people, when we go to new markets, they don't know Philly Pretzel Factory. Um, and the other part is the pricing is so strange for our product. I mean, uh, at a lot of our stores, the price of 100 pretzels could be 40 or $50 for 100 pretzels, depends what market you're in. Um, so you get a lot for you. But people don't realize when we have on our menu, we have prices like 50 pretzels, 100 pretzels. We don't even have one pretzel on the menu. So you, people go, who would ever buy 100 pretzels? Like they don't even. And then you say, well, you know, whether it's a snack shop or a sales rep who goes out to visit people, instead of bringing donuts, they'll bring pretzels. And that's where it is. So there's an education part of it um, thing. And that's where it's where we feel like we've, we've done a lot to get to the point where we're at, but we really feel like we have a lot more to go and we're excited about uh, the prospects ahead. Dan, I'm excited for you guys. And you are, I'm calling you the pretzel prince. I mean, you're amazing. What a great story. And whether people look and say, well, I'm, I'm not in, no, you are interested in the pretzel story because Dan's story is so valuable and I want you all to embrace it. And I hope you reach for your dreams and do whatever you think you're most passionate about, just like Dan did. And maybe you have a, a Philadelphia dream within you or wherever you're from. And we wish you, Dan, the best of luck. Thank you so much. Really. Oh, what a great it. story. And now you guys can't see this, but there is a box of Philly pretzels from the Philly Pretzel Factory right here. So I've been dying to just dive in. So I need to end this podcast pronto mm -hmm. so I can take a bite and go for it. But um, I'm glad you went for it and you pressed whatever you pressed and wherever you download your podcast to listen to this. I'm so not eloquent right now because I have these gorgeous pretzels in front of me. I just want to dive in. So um, I will see you guys Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Claim and Countdown. Until then... Carpe Diem sees the day. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.